Okay, good morning everybody and welcome to the 60th meeting of the Economy Committee. Some members will be attending this morning's meeting via video conference and our witnesses will be briefing via a Starleaf also. The meeting will be broadcast live when open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's web pages on the Assembly website. So just to remind members to mute their devices when they aren't speaking. So um, moving on to item number one, which is apologies. We have apologies from Mervyn. Yes, I think Chair. that's the only one we have so yes, far. Yes, so far, yeah. Thank you. And then item number two is draft minutes. So the draft minutes are at page five of your pack for the meeting held on the 28th of April. Are members content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Thank you. Um, moving on then to item number three which is Chair's Business. At page 15 of your pack, there is a copy of the Department of Finance's document, Public Expenditure Terminology, which has been provided as a reference for members. And the committee office is currently organising a budget training session for members. Um, okay, so that's just to note for people. Yeah, we're, we're just trying to get that done as soon as we can, Chair. Moving on then to the next um, Chair's business, there is correspondence from the DALO at page four of your table papers regarding a legislative consent motion to be brought by the Minister in respect of amendments to the Company Director's Disqualification Order 2020 applying in the North. The amendments are to facilitate investigation of the conduct of directors of companies which have been dissolved and where appropriate the taking of proceedings to have them disqualified. The urgency over introducing this amendment to the legislation in Britain relates to concerns over potential fraud occurring in the loan and grant schemes that were established to assist companies through the pandemic. Um, it's intended that the measures will apply retrospectively. Um, and this will enable the conduct of directors to be investigated and where it is found to be unacceptable, disqualification um, action to be taken in the case of companies which have been dissolved before the date on which the Westminster Act is passed, as well as after the date. The Minister will be seeking the Executive's agreement both to the amendments um, to the Act and being included in the Westminster Bill and to the necessary LCM being tabled in the Assembly. So members are content that anticipate, in anticipation of the LCM being laid and a committee report being required to consult with our, our relevant stakeholders. Yep, thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, then moving on, there's another item of Chair's business. Uh, the committee has previously received correspondence from the Teaching English as a Foreign Language Colleges, uh, which have not received support during the COVID pandemic. A departmental response on their issues is in the pack um, in it's matters of writing. Just to seek members' agreement that we will schedule an informal meeting with the colleges to hear some of the issues that, that they have been facing. Thank you. And then uh, finally, I think under Chair's business, we have a ministerial briefing next week that members will be aware of, um, and it primarily will be in relation to the Economic Recovery Action Plan. The Minister um, attended the committee previously on the 16th of December. However, just to, to let members know, the committee has not invited the, the Minister to attend again prior to now for reasons the members have previously discussed, and the Minister has to leave the meeting uh, next Wednesday at 11.15. Um, however, she has agreed to come to the meeting early from 9.30 to, to give us a bit longer. Um, and this is one of our committee's short meetings. So the, it will, the minister's briefing will be our only briefing next week. So um, 
Are members content that we would begin our meeting next week at 9.30? Thank you. Okay. Okay, so moving on then to item number four, which is the departmental briefing on um, the High Street Voucher Scheme. There is a clerk's memo at page 96. There is a copy of the press release from the Minister on the announcement of the High Street, High Street Stimulus Scheme at page 98. There is a written briefing paper on the budget position for the department dated the 2nd of April at page 100 and an updated clerk's memo at page 8 of your table papers. So just um, if we can bring into the spotlight, please, Keith Foster, who's Director of Strategic Policy, um, Economic Policy Unit, Dave Vincent, who's Strategic Digitisation Advisor at the Strategic Investment Board, Tommy O'Reilly from the Economic Strategy Unit and DFE, and Naomi Waite, who is Director of Marketing at Tourism NI. So um, if I hand over to yourselves to make an opening statement, and then, then we can open it up to members for some, some discussion and questions. Good morning, Chair, and today, members. And perhaps I can start by sort of thanking you for the opportunity to come along briefly tonight on both schemes which are part of the Economic Recovery Action Plan. The Minister made it last Friday that the executive to launch the high speed prepaid scheme represents a significant boost to the local economy with a commitment that all citizens in Northern Ireland will receive a £100 prepaid power in the coming months to be spent in the local economy. This scheme was first mentioned in November 2020 when the Finance Minister announced a £300 million COVID-19 support package which included a provision for an £95 million high street voucher scheme that would give people a prepaid car for use in local businesses. In addition to the injection of £95 million in the local economy, the Department for the Economy at the time stated that the multiplier effect of this scheme from people spending more than the value of the car and the ripple effect from purchases will deliver very economic benefits and make a significant step to kickstarting our economy. This type of stimulus pumps money directly into businesses that are open for challenge trading as opposed to grant payments which give money to businesses which are closed and that are able to furnish staff. The primary reason for not progressing the scheme during the 2021 financial year was the public health situation and the lockdown which we commenced in late December 20. This resulted in non-essential businesses being closed meaning the use of prepaid cards during this period would have not have directly benefited the targeted retail and hospitality sectors, would contradict the stay-at-home device from the Department of Health and could potentially have increased the risk of community transmission. Despite deciding not to progress with implementation, in the last financial year, officials have been continuing to work on the scheme, examining a range of issues including the different delivery options, including development of the airline business case, the legislation required to make these types of payments, options, issues relating to fraud and error, and examples of these types of schemes in other parts of the world. There's also been an extensive round of consultations with key stakeholders to hear their views on what should be included within the scheme and how best to ensure it is delivered in a way that has the greatest impact. The Minister has also commissioned some preliminary research into when the scheme would be most beneficial in the economic recovery. Excited that there will be pent up demand following easing of restrictions, and whilst research is ongoing, the Department believes 
that the end of the summer is probably the most appropriate time to deliver this spending boost. DfE believes the successful delivery of the High Street Support Scheme will provide an important response to COVID in helping safeguard jobs and businesses in the current crisis, but also making a direct contribution to a strong, competitive, regionally balanced economy. The wholesale, and I'm sorry, the wholesale and retail sector employs just over 130,000 people in the entirely reliant on consumer spending, which is forecast or estimate to have fallen by about 8% in 2020. Of the scheme and bulk premium of the economy will lead to improved level of customer confidence and increased levels of public spending when safe to do so. Clearly, we'll be aware of examples around the world of similar schemes to those reviewed by the executive last week. In Malta and Jersey, there have been spared local prepaid card and voucher type schemes aimed at boosting the local economies. There are some that these schemes have been successful, and indeed in Malta, they have launched a second with the injection of another round of 50 million euros to provide further support to specific sectors in their country. There are some risks that some people will simply choose to use their prepaid card to pay for goods or services that they would have put right Some evidence from George suggests that this is free of money for consumers to spend on other high street high value items. There will also be a time in fact in that people bring forward purchases which they would have made later in the year and therefore in both of these scenarios the whole year's total spend remains largely unchanged. There are a range of technical and delivery issues which DFE project will have to address in the coming months and we'll explain some of these later in the meeting when we discuss how the department is currently planning to deliver the scheme. We are aware that there will be significant interest in the proposed scheme for both citizens and retailers, and we are planning a comprehensive process of stakeholder engagement and marketing in order to give retailers confidence in the infrastructure and to encourage citizens to use their prepaid card or vouchers to help achieve the goals. The current view is that the scheme should exclude online purchases, cash withdrawals, and use for gambling purposes. But what has been suggested to some retailers that have not been negatively affected by lockdown should be excluded from the scheme. The department believes that this is difficult to administer fairly and it will add complexity into the design. Our preferred approach is to encourage citizens via an extensive media campaign to use their cards in a way that will maximise the benefits of the scheme to support local businesses. We have already engaged with business organisations and chambers who we will partner with to get the messaging right and encourage people to spend the call. At this time, all the detail around the policy and legislation has not yet been finalised or approved by the Minister. This works continue, and we will continue to refine the policy in the coming weeks, and we'll be putting advice to the Minister on these issues. I make this point today because it could be that we will be able to fully answer all the questions or some of the questions um, as the work may be still ongoing or the Minister has not finalised the policy. At this point, Chair, sure, we'll finish, and myself and my colleagues are happy to answer questions that you and the committee may have on either the High Street Prepets Park Scheme or on the tourist um, And we will make sure the committee is kept up here as we work through the next stages. Okay. Thank you.
Thanks um, very much for that uh, briefing, Tommy. Um, it's, it's useful to get that as background and, and as you've highlighted yourself there in, in your comments, there is significant interest in the scheme um, and committee members only became aware of the scheme being announced last Friday with the press release and had, had no prior um, awareness of it, that it was going to be announced. And, um, and even for today, we, we haven't had a, a background briefing paper in relation to um, what has been included or, or what the level of um, development has been to date other than and what you have outlined there now and you have highlighted that there is some initial research being carried out. Uh, what, what specifically is that looking at and what do you think the time frame will be for that piece of work being completed and as you have highlighted there the, the fuller um, policy being put before the Minister for approval? So, so the, um, the research now has been commissioned and we are expecting that it will be completed probably within the next four to six weeks um, and that will then give us some further feedback in terms of the three looking at the question in terms of the impact in terms of the, the into the retail sector um, and obviously spend being brought into the market so we are expecting to get that completed in the very near future um, and clearly you know, the committee will be briefed on that in due course. Okay, thanks for that. Um, and and we have, you know, you have. There are some details which were outlined in in the press statement in relation to, for example, that there would be an application process in relation to that. And if I understand it correctly, it's an online application process. Uh, I was just wondering, has the department given any consideration to barriers that might exist, you know, for people with poor internet access, for example, or uh, and, and I think you referred to this in your comments about how it will be publicised to make sure that basically everybody can benefit from the scheme. So, Chair, what we'll do is we'll bring in Dave at this point because Dave's going to lead in the work on the delivery um, in, ter in terms of looking at how the, the application process might work from a technical viewpoint. And maybe then Keith can pick up on some of the issues around or how we'll engage to make sure that those people who may have difficulties are going to address those sorts of issues. Yeah. Oh. oh, is Dave maybe on mute? No, he's not. Are there some difficulties here in Dave? Okay, yeah, I'll catch you himself. Sorry. So, maybe we'll go back to Dave. Dave? Yep, no, that's fine. If Keith maybe wants to take over about the... Sometimes the, the Starleaf system is not at its best with headsets. Um, I don't know if there's anything technical there that can be done, but... So, do you want to speak there about sort of plans for um, the, the groups, the measures? Oh, we can't hear Keith either. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we can hear you now. <laughs> Um, I can pick up a little bit, Chair, just in terms of what Dave was going to allude to. I'm sure um, we looked comprehensively at what the best approach would be to enable, um, you know, identify the actual population for the cards. Effectively, uh, that was um, through sort of two, two approaches. One was a, one was a, a pull approach at the time, and one was a push approach. Um, the push approach would be issuing cards to be you know, um, could identify sort of the eligible population. Um, 
we felt all the bottles so um, you know, less acceptable with feathers to dry and put the portal in place that would enable wet situations to be forthcoming with the portal. Um, we would engage in quite a comprehensive marketing campaign, sort of encourage the details to be registered in the portal, and then the cards would be issued to, to the eligible individuals. I won't say any more than that because the industry got the expertise in that space and can go into that in a little bit more detail. Uh, well, the other point about how do we how do we ensure that we are as inclusive as possible? I think I think the point is um, we are standing on a number of advisory groups that will look specifically at this issue. So, for example, those that are busy disengaged or um, do not have access to the internet, we will through the advisory group simply understand what is the best mechanism by which we can target um, those individuals. So there's a comprehensive program of activity planned in that space. Okay, thank you for that. Um, and Tommy, could I maybe just ask as well about, um, I, we, we know that, for example, it can't be used online. So can we just maybe get a wee bit of information about how technically that will be prevented? Um, and whether click and collect, for example, will be provided for, uh, you know, to help people, you know, use uh, local retailers for that. And um, if there will be any other restrictions in relation to the high street voucher scheme, and, and then we can pick up um, on the tourism voucher separately from that. Okay, sure. so in terms of, let's say, the delivery mechanism, what we're working with with, um, with Dave and the team is really putting in place a, a number of different processes. So the first stage really is around through AI Direct will really be the use of a portal, which will be there to gather the information and in order to help us understand who of the sort of 1.4 million people in Northern Ireland are applying for the cards and get some basic details. One of the reasons why we're going is because, you know, the problem is very conscious of issues around fraud and error. As you're aware, you know, the other office have made a number of comments around schemes that have been wrong in the past. And we are trying to make sure we've got a technical response in place which protects public monies as far as possible. If the use of a portal allows them to gather that information, cross-check that information, and ensure we're getting the money to the right people across the world. Outside of that then, we're really going to start to develop how we're going to direct businesses to ensure that you know, we get the dark confidence that the technical solutions which are in place can deal with their demands and their needs. And certainly look to the citizens of Northern Ireland are sure that they're able to get access to the services in local shops and local businesses. And um, but that's the work that we're doing in terms of design and how the sort of customer flow and the citizen flow will go through the process. Um, and they will be able to have you back on any of I am. We can hear you. <laughs> it happens more often than you think. <laughs> <laughs> so you were just talking about the issue around um, click and collect and other access revenues for local businesses and for citizens. Do you want to say some more about the technical solution around that? Um, I guess, uh, apologies for, for missing that, that initial part of the conversation. I guess, Chair, to revisit very quickly, it is a digital first solution with significant engagement 
um, around the, the digital proxy, proxy element of the service and the ability to allow members of the public to register using the telephone service, but also significant activation activity went on with the potential to mobilise in, in towns and villages around the region as well, and hands-on support for those who are either don't have access or aren't capable of doing that. And also working with stakeholder organisations who represent some of the, the digitally disengaged and making sure that we have a holistic approach to that. Um, from, from a, a consultation perspective and an engagement with the, the wider sector, we've done some, some significant engagement with them already, trying to understand um, their um, requirements from the scheme and, and how they can support it, but also the constraints they may have. A number of technical considerations in there, and Tommy may already have alluded to this, but digital first, and also the prepaid power supporting some of the, the requirements from the sector around no need for additional infrastructure or training, and that it just fitted in with the existing infrastructure that they have in place and wasn't something they had to invest in on top. But also talking to them about how they, how they can mobilise and support the scheme and support the specific messaging of the scheme and the aims and objectives of the scheme and the public relations and marketing campaign that will go on to really um, clearly articulate the objectives of the scheme and how we want members of the public to get involved and allowing those, those retailers to be fully engaged in that, whether that be with actual artifacts and advertising and are to encourage people to come in and spend or helping people with the process if they have no issue and understanding how they can sign post back to our support services. Um, and, and again, digital first but with significant back office um, functionality and back office support available in terms of telephone support. Um, in terms of the initial registration of members of the public, but also then once the cards are issued, requirements of the prepaid card providers to support customer services as well as supporting the fraud and the error in um, management issues that we've already talked about. Okay, thank you. But just, I suppose, um, in relation to what it can be spent on, is there any more information on, on that particular? No, I don't think the chair at the moment will finalise the, the list. We are trying to ensure that it, it's supporting the, the retail sector and the wholesale sector. But I mean, in terms of exclusions, we really haven't got the final list of that. But clearly, in terms of, as I said previously, you know, cash controls and gambling purposes. But more importantly, general online services, general online purposes. Uh, the intention is we do want people to scrap it. Let's use the term bricks and mortar. Mm. And it, the driving, so the driving force behind all of this, like getting people to fall back into the, sh into the shops, trying to encourage local businesses and build up, uh, trying to build the high streets and road cities and towns right across the world. And I suppose just a final question for myself before bringing in other members. Is there going to be additional administrative costs to the rollout of the scheme? We're expecting that the administration costs will all be covered within the cost of the overall scheme at the moment. But I mean, this is a project which will stand up and be stood down um, within this current financial year. And um, so there'll be no recurring costs for the department. Okay. Thank you. Um, can I bring in John Stewart, please? Thanks, Chair. Um, folks, thanks for the presentation so far. Uh, as the Chair's already said, there's a massive amount of public interest in this. And um, even when we shared the basic information that we had last week, and why I can say that there were hundreds of comments asking me questions that I still don't have answers to, and we do, if we know we'll get 
clues today. Uh, I am a little bit surprised that five and a half months since this was launched, um, or at least announced, and both still hoping it is in the conceptual stage, which is a bit disappointing. Maybe that's the reason we're going to be tasked with it during those five months, and we're just getting to that point. Um, I fully understand the reasons for the delays in terms of rollout. Um, because of the environment that we're in, so we're getting that right. But um, I hope we'll be on the back of this, you know, when we get the next presentation, there'll be a few more bones on that. Um, it needs to be, you know, I know it's going to be argued, but it must, wherever possible, do what it sets out to do, and that's the high street. Um, it would be really, really, really frustrating to see the big businesses that have done so well during the pandemic benefit from this en masse. And I don't know how we go about doing that, whether it is through an education campaign or an advertising campaign, but I would be so upset about it for Amazon and Tesco's and Saints, which would benefit from this. I know they play an important role in their towns at least, but they have done exceptionally well where the independent indigenous retail and service like that does not make them crippled. So whatever we can do directly towards that through advertising or in terms of how this is um, scripted, then it has to be done. Um, just a couple of questions, so things I'm getting asked. Um, how long do you assume it will take from the mass amount of applications that you get to whenever these cards are being rolled out to the letterboxes? Um, secondly, do you put a number on the time frame of how you know, get the cards are using six months? Is this going to be used up to Christmas, for example, this year, or is that going to be limited by time frame? Um, I'll give you those two for now, and then um, if I've got time, I'll come back. Okay, so maybe John will want to hear us. Um, I'll get Dave to answer the questions, the two questions that you've asked correctly. But let me just show you, go back to your own comments. Um, that once it's five months, you know, there has been uncertainty in terms of both the health the pandemic, but also in terms of getting the final agreement. But the department hasn't been sitting on its hands. And you know, working with the SIB, we do have the very clear idea now, and we have a series of processes in place which we'll be waiting to get the green light. Now we've got that we'll be able to move straight into the um, procurement and getting the design finalised. So let me assure you that there's no work ongoing and that will take that forward very quickly. Dave, do you speak about the two particular questions? Certainly yes. In, in terms of the, the first question, just to be clear, as soon as a citizen and a member of the public registers on the portal, we're validating that, that registration in real time so that there'll be real feedback in terms of what they were and what they'll be able to manage the expectation. But our assumption is that within you know a number of days after that, we will be passing those um, registrations across the three-pick card. We have a very tight plan rollout in terms of a six or seven-week week rollout to roll out the 1.4 million potential cards. So, so people will start seeing them within days rather than months. So that's the first part of the question. Some of that has some complexities around it in terms of how we want to roll that out, whether that be by age groups or cohorts or region, and we're still working that through working with colleagues and working with the minister to confirm that approach. The second piece is that um, technically the scheme will run for the financial year, but the intention is that, that we will run the scheme over the period that the research indicates, which initially at this point is August through to kind of October, November time, not displacing the Christmas peak in spending that, that's, that's proposed. But we do have the ability then to mop up, um, and some of the research has shown that, that whenever there's money left on the cards and people don't spend all of the money at the same time, that we would have the ability to, to sweep that up in a further campaign, supported by additional public messaging to support that, that behaviour to drive spend on the high street. Thank you. 
Okay, thanks for that. That's very important. Um, just my last point, uh, okay, a chance that you might get a well. Um, you mentioned about telephone. I, I'm conscious of what the chair says about accessing this. There'll be many people this will just be a gift to do, and others will be very intimidated about even the notion of finance and online applications. So working with staff and group groups is really going to be so important, the likes of the, the you know, Google um, call services for the agent and stuff and the communities and the councils. But will you be able to buy this with a telephone? Yeah, yes, or, you will. You will, okay. You will very simply so will fill in the form on your behalf. No problem. Okay, well, if you did, you know, just reiterate my point, I think this has to be what it says. And I know that's your intention, but it's how you um, will all have the play rule that it needs to be done. This needs to sure up our independent high street. And I think if it does that, it'll be amazing, but I would really be regretted if it goes anywhere like that. Um, but, yeah. just, just to reassure the committee, in terms of the public relation and marketing activity that's going on, significant effort being put into the fairly complex messaging that needs yeah. to go out um, to, to guide the, the, the public to spend on the high street and supporting independent retailers and a real focus on the creative um, rally that's come back so far around that high street and actually showcasing regionally as well some of those examples and really creating a sense of involvement in the industry part of, of the economy with the high street retailers and supporting those independent local businesses. No worries. Well, can I thank you, Matt, and just put that up. Matt, this afternoon, the efforts so far and rolled this out, and I don't think the committee will be found wanted. If there's any consultation where you want us to play, we're all very engaged with our constituents, and we're hearing many, many questions being asked and much feedback. So, at any stage during this, before we roll out, that will be happily done to begin with that again. Thanks, guys. Thank um, thanks for that, John. And just to, to pick up on John's final point there around um, ensuring it's accessible, and uh, I suppose it does just show the, the public interest in this. While we are, are on air here this morning, I've received an email from the RNIB about asking that this will be accessible to blind and partially sighted people, so can just ask for assurances in relation to that. Yeah, I think we need to be Thank you. Can we bring Gary into the spotlight, please? Thanks, Chair, and thanks everyone for uh, your presentation. Obviously, it's very useful. Uh, it's answered quite a few queries already that I would have had. Um, I think it is very welcome. It's uh, between uh, progress and
more of the voucher is accessible to as many uh, as many as possible. Right? But we don't want to see everybody rushing to you know, one massive retailer which has done very well. At the same time, what I'm hearing from the high street is that you know it's important that so if you want to get a pair of glasses with it, for example, you know that's okay. And if you want to get a pair of shoes, it needs to be that wide range. We shouldn't be that big. The one question I want to ask uh, is around the the, the, the use of locally. Is there going to be any restrictions? Obviously, you know, I'm from London Dairy, so I won't be able to spend it here. <laughs> is there anything to stop people, for example, using it? Um, can we use it anywhere in the UK? Can we use it, for example, in the Republic of Ireland? How, how is that promoted? And um, maybe if you just speak to that for me. Do you offer them? I guess there are a couple of elements to that. Um, the first one is that we can we can tie down spend to geographically being in Northern Ireland. Okay. And so it's only in bricks and mortar outlets at this point in Northern Ireland. Uh, we have the ability to control that. Um, once you start to get down to a lower level of granularity, that becomes very difficult to administer and, and a bit more restrictive. Um, but what we are hoping to do is mirror some of those restrictions or align those restrictions to the advertising and marketing and messaging campaign and the ability to make that local and, and that kind of initial strap line at the start of the program was around spend local. That may change in terms of how what it's called, but that concept and those objectives are the same. Okay, well, thanks for that. I, I, I think people, we, we need to trust people as well. And I think people are having very good through the pandemic, and I think that people will use their uh, own heads and say, look, let us support our local retailers who have uh, had such a hard time. So, no, thanks for that, and I very much appreciate the update. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Can we bring in Sinead, please? Thank you um, for the meeting so far. Um, I, I probably just want to kind of explore a wee bit more about the impact assessments that have taken place in relation to this scheme. Um, obviously, um, the constituents uh, that I serve here in the Northwest are very much welcoming this. Uh, and I would uh, concur with the observations of John Stewart. It's really important that. Um, this does what it was intended of the high street voucher scheme and that it is spent locally and that it is spent in our mortar, particularly those businesses that were constrained during uh, the pandemic. And if it does that, then it will be very successful. But I just want to um, understand the impact that we've conducted on this and refer to other areas that have already done this um, in, in Jersey and Ayman and etc. etc. Um, can you just uh, give me an idea of what the results were in the impact assessment? What were the results in, in relation to um, recruiting jobs, maintaining jobs, and um, driving the economy forward? Uh, and direct impact and indirect impact and, and how it's going to be underpinned our GDP because I'm really aware that 140 million pounds is half of the money from the economic recovery after that. It's been spent in the scheme, so it has to actually deliver for every citizen in our realm by driving the economy forward. So um, it would be good to have transparency in relation to your research. Um, on that, and how do we then assess whether it has been successful based on your predictions? Okay, so let me just sort of give you a quick answer to part of that question, and then I will bring Keith in 
to give some more background information in terms of the other schemes and how we're moving forward with the assessment. Um, I think it's really important to understand that this scheme is not a job creation scheme. Right? This job is about supporting local businesses, sort of you know, move forward, trying to return to ensure that the high street will see an increased footfall and see people coming back in into those local businesses. But it's not directly there to actually increase jobs per se. It's about pumping the economy and trying to help businesses move forward. Keep doing comment in terms of the experiences in Ibn Malta and in Jersey and also then in terms of our economy or the economic impact. Just briefly, um, we've been doing research on Marine on this shift, um, but the negative findings from the Jersey scheme would suggest that like 70% of the spend was really into the sort of retail hospitality areas. So that was, that was a good outcome and the, the target um, market was the sort of very large uh, achieved. Um, in terms of the multiplier effect, I think we were looking roughly at the benefit for like every pound that was spent in the scheme, we would roughly catch you somewhere between maybe an additional 45p to 56p. So when you equate that up with the establishments, well, we've quite a, quite a strong multiplier effect, and therefore an additional adoption of the scheme. Um, I mean, in terms of, as Tommy's point, as Tommy said, the intention is that we get the marketing right, um, and we get the, the same plan with the retailers and hospitality sector appropriately. The feedback that we've had so far from those sectors is that it will definitely be well received. It's what is needed now, and provided the lands at the right time, and the evidence is showing that that would be at the end of August. Uh, so, how, how long do you think that it's going to last? 
So when the NCDOs are down earlier, I mean, the scheme itself has to be completed by March of next year because it's a one-year funding cycle, so we have to get it completed. We're trying to find the optimum point at which to commence the scheme, and that's probably, at the moment, a preliminary research is shown probably around about the end of August, beginning early, early on. Now, clearly, we don't want to run into the um, Christmas period, so we're probably looking at that sort of window of that three months. But people want to spend all of the money. There will always be people with cards with three by here and four by there. So we'll probably come back in the new year to try and wrap that up because that will end up being unspent money. And we'll try and get all of that spent through the financial year. But we are intending that the scheme will be closed and finished by the end of March this year. Okay, and um, in relation, uh, it has been asked earlier, but it uh, just wasn't really clear. Um, in relation to the cost of administration, obviously the cost of the portal, cost of actually getting the, the, the money out, and then uh, for the retailers to claim back the money. I mean, it's quite a significant administration, and won't be your department, won't be your department, or maybe it's the company that and the private sector in order to deliver the scheme. Okay, so the money's coming to the department, so the money will be within the department, but then we'll be handing it over, we will then be using that money through the providers. And Dave, do you want to say something about how that will work, but also can you just give some reassurance that you need about the administration of this? in terms of from a technical viewpoint? Sure, and I guess not, not to repeat the, the overall architecture of the solution, um, but very simply, the portal um, is, is a fairly straightforward um, piece of technology, making sure it's simple to use, simple to manage and simple to administer. That's really about a registration process and some data matching and expertise in the back end for technology to allow us to ensure that we're giving money to the right people. Once we've got that registration piece done, we are passing very basic details to allow a free card provider to, to send and issue the card. They will take over responsibility for the customer service at that point. In terms of a bit like if you get a card from the bank, if you have an issue with that, if you need to, um, if you need to um, enable that card, there will actually be a, a way of doing that on the telephone or with the phone, but that will be done by the, the pre card provider themselves and part of the standard service delivery that they give. Back to the previous question, Prepaid card provider will also give us daily reports in terms of uptake and um, issues, customer service calls, spend by merchant code, but also by geography, which is really important to me as we run the program because we can actually have the opportunity to tailor the, the messaging to allow us to encourage spend by region, by geography, or if the behaviours aren't what we want to be seeing, we, we can tweak that messaging to allow us to do that. Um, in terms of administration, Tommy, I'll just back to that specific question. We are working very closely with colleagues in Digital Transformation Services and NIH Rec. Um, so really good modelling and understanding through the, uh, the vaccination programme in terms of the level of, of type of support that is required. And we're working with them in a user design piece to understand that journey from, from start to finish and make sure we have the programme that was support there. But very comfortable and it's within the, the, the scope of, of the business case that's there and the cost of a very good outline. So comfortable with the level of administration support we require, and um, the importance of the digital design to make sure we make that seamless for as many people as possible. But recognizing and, and lessons from the vaccination program will show that people in Northern Ireland like to lift the phone first, um, and the ability to deliver that customer service 
um, experience and done quite a that, as well as potential through like activation as part of the marketing campaign you can identify the cities to allow people to do that. But from mm -hmm. that Sorry, Dave, I can't understand how it's 1.4 million are going to get the card and it's going to cost 140 million. And I don't see where the rental room is there for the administration and the complexity and everything else. It's just that I don't understand it yet because we haven't been given any transparency or anyone anyway. provide an additional level of detail. We are in the beginning of procurement. A lot of those numbers are based on pre-market engagement and understanding, for example, the cost of running a scheme. And what we understand well, and, 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 and we think we understand the pre-pay power provider um, pretty well in terms of the cost to do that and manage that. And that's, that's an off-the-shelf price, and there's no movement in it or anything in that. Um, if, if it's around the edges, are the management scheme, the NIR costs, and in terms of what that looks like, and we're working with them at the moment to get to the final stage. And as we work through the final versions of the business case, we will reflect any, any changes there. But there are no major risks coming out to say there are, there are line items here that we haven't seen or concerns about the level of administration specifically. Okay. Okay. I hope I'm sure that we are trying to drive the cost, keep the cost down by using the digital solution. Okay. And I'm sure, as Dave says, we're still refining that. But it is work in progress, um, but there's no sort of burning platforms at the moment for us in terms of looking, looking forward. Hopefully, we'll be able to get this in mind. Okay? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Shane. Thanks. Um, and so just to go back to the point about the, I think he says, Keith, that the, this would generate an additional 45p on every pound spent. So just what what is the, um, the expected benefit of the scheme overall in terms of that? Back to back to the economy, um, and what does that compare like to other places where similar schemes have been rolled out? Um, I think actually it's a little bit too sort of just finalising the numbers um, in the business case and the projections in the business case, but it's very difficult to actually what the forecast about actually what the overall benefit for the NISK is going to be when we are benchmarking against what we've seen in other jurisdictions. Okay, thanks for that. Um, can we bring Stuart into the spotlight, please? Just simply didn't open at all, uh, and, and maybe to, to, to have a 
breaking up a, a wee bit. We didn't catch the the last couple of sentences there. If you maybe want to repeat. Sorry, the last, yeah, the last bit was around, can I donate my card uh, to a local charity? How can I do that? I could, for example, donate the card to a food bank or something like that. Um, and indeed, just going on with that, if I can't read the information, can I use the card in a charity shop? Thank you. Okay. Sure, so really interesting questions. And some of that, I have to say, some of the details of that we haven't worked through. But let me just, let's just try and pick up some of, the, some of the questions because you know we have answers to some of them, but just some of the better details that we haven't worked through yet. Dave, do you want to speak about in terms of how much um, issues began fraud? Okay, so, so um, without avoiding the, the question, um, some of this is still subject to, to procurement. Um, we have a number of providers from a free cloud provider perspective who will have terms and conditions, and there will be an element of that. But actually, the objective at the moment is there will be no minimum spend. Um, there, there's an indication that there will be a minimum spend. The second is, um, it, 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 and that was, I was going to give you a, a sense of what other states have seen in terms of what they've seen in terms of numbers of transactions. Um, and they have seen spend, and I think um, Keith alluded to the fact earlier that we've seen a significant impact, I think like 78% across retail and hospitality and some of the other schemes. But the average transaction was around £28. Pounds. Um, so people using the card three or four times rather than a one-off discretionary purpose. Um, one of the other pieces around the procurement is understanding. Four different providers on the framework will have different ways of, of charging us for that service and making sure that when you spend £28, pounds, it's not really 30 because there's, there's a fee on that is part of the procurement process and understanding the cost of administering this. And there are very different delivery models in that space. So um, it will be a prepaid card, which can be used on a card machine. Um, Tommy has said there are only limited restrictions, but we're still working through some of that. So there is the potential that if somebody has a card machine that you could go into a charity shop and, 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 and purchase in the same way that you would shop in, in, in a street, if that's what you want to do with it. And as long as they have the, 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 the I think it's important that I'm sure that we're also recognising that as a department we're not trying to restrict people in terms of their choice within overall context. So we're trying to set a policy context or a policy framework of supporting local businesses, but within that framework we're really giving people choices because everyone's lives are all different. A lot of people have different needs at different times. So really it's a matter for them to make those choices. We will facilitate it as far as possible. As long as it's consistent 
with the policy framework we're setting amongst the minister saying, well, as being what you want to achieve. That's, that's really where we're trying to go with it. So getting down into the detail as to whether or not you can pay a food bank or donate a food bank or buy a charity shop, in principle, we would say there should be no reason against that, right? It's within, it's within the context of trying to support local businesses, and that's what we're trying to do. And just by fraud and error, I think that you know that is that is an area that we are very mindful of. We're, we're bringing in some special support to work with the providers to make sure that are we ensure that because they have a set of standard terms that, that will protect us in terms of fraud. And what we're just trying to make sure is that they're using public money and that we've got a robust system of fraud and error to protect the use of the cards. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, you said that you, that, that you will have a number of key stakeholders that you were working with. Will that include the High Street Task Force? It, it, it will, yes, sir. This, this is a simple answer. We've had some engagement already with retail, hospitality, and we're just starting to widen out and make sure it's a, it's a complete view, um, as well as those other um, voluntary and, and other stakeholder groups. So happy to share um, what we have that full stakeholder matrix of. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Stuart. Can we bring John O'Dowd into the spotlight, please? Thank you, Chair. Thank you for uh, the presentation thus far. As I just said, uh, there's quite a significant amount of work yet to be done in regards to this policy. Uh, the business case is not complete, procurements are complete, the final details of the road are not complete. So I would be pleasantly surprised if this hits the high street in August of this year. Uh, it may well be that people use this scheme for their Christmas shopping rather than August because once you get into procurement uh, and all those things, it can get very, as you know, only too well, it can get very, very complicated. The other thing that, that I'm slightly surprised at, if not concerned at, is uh, when the chair mentioned to you that the RAIB uh, Institute for the Blind had been in contact, you said we contact them. Surely your economy scheme should have flagged up the need to engage uh, with, with, with groups who may be marginalised as a result of that. Okay, so do you remember back then in terms of the opening comments and to the business case, the business case is 95% incomplete. In terms of the procurement, the procurement lines have all been set up and there's been pre-engagement already taking place. Um, and in terms of the planning, the plans are already there in terms of moving forward. However, we couldn't move forward to moving this towards conclusion until we got executive agreement to move to the next stage. We received that last Thursday, and now we're moving into full implementation mode. So I would expect that once the procurement is complete, we will be able to finalise the OBC, largely speaking, to a point whereby it would be then completed at that point. We're expecting that we've got an estimated three month timeline for the procurement to be completed and the cards ready to flow. So that's all coming in the line with being ready to be rolled at the end of August and September. Now, you know, at the same time we're still working through this. So I'm not gonna hang my life on it. It's a, a, that's our plan and that's what we're working. We've got a team of project together and we're trying to move at pace in order to get the delivery on that issue. Okay. And the second the second part of your question was around I'm surprised that 
But when the Germans and she had the RAA, they had the compact, but it appeared to me that was the first instance where you were going to Sorry, you know, what I meant to say was, I was sure that they were. I mean, I don't know who's actually in the advisory group at the moment, okay? But if the representatives of the voluntary and community sector would all be there now, taking that into account, I would imagine they would represent all of the main groups representing people with disabilities or those who are disadvantaged. But I haven't got the list with me at the moment. What I was just trying to give the chair was a reassurance that we'd be sure. Okay. Then, in, in terms of, of the main commission, I want to ask, how will this impact on anybody who's on benefits? A significant number of people have lost their jobs or are now claiming universal credit and other benefits. If they apply for this £100 scheme, will that impact on their benefits? Well, I think that the general public that it would not be deemed as being income, and so therefore the purpose of universal credit um, or other income-related benefits, it wouldn't count, okay? But what I will do is I will check it for you, because clearly it's going to impact on people's benefit system. I think that would be totally, that would be quite productive. But I just haven't to that, that particular detail, but I will come back to you. But I think certainly the policy intention is it would not be deemed as being income. And just my last point is this, in, in terms of the other schemes you have looked at, has there been, has there been any evidence of them and the consequences of price rises as a result of the scheme being introduced into the market? Um, I haven't seen any, anything in the evidence of that in both Malta and Malta. I mean, they found that it was specifically around the issue around the retail sector, the hospitality, right? And they found it so successful that they came with the second one in the autumn. So I don't think that they've seen those naturally a, a price impact in terms of prices going up. But they did see that it reinforced jobs in the market and allowed them to take confidence in the sector. And businesses were very supportive, as they are in the other end. You know, we've had quite a number of people involved in, in the retail sector and hospitality sector welcoming the scheme and working very closely with the department and with Dave in trying to make sure it's a success. Okay, thanks, Tommy. Thanks for that. And it would be very useful for us to get some clarity around what John has raised there in relation to the, to the voucher, because we have seen some issues with the, the £500 payments to health workers, for example, and that, that being potentially taxed and um, everything else. So I, I think we do need some clarity on that issue. Um, yeah. Thank you. Can we bring in Claire, please? Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, my understanding of this scheme in terms of what you were working towards before is that this will be a prepaid um, debit card that will be used within the confines of Northern Ireland. I think you might find yourself getting into difficulty if you started um, providing a prescriptive list of, of where it can and can't be spent. So the idea around it was to ensure marketing campaigns so that people were getting more value from the amount of money on the card rather than where they were specifically spending it. So to encourage independent businesses, for example, to offer two-for-one offers um, or, or something like that so that people were spending it maybe more wisely could be a, a way of putting um, it. Um, so I, I suppose I'd be keen to understand you know, how you will market that to, to 
which all businesses you know across Northern Ireland, and it, and also you know gives rise to the questions around you know can this be something from hospitality and restaurants and all of that. Um, also, will it be able to be used for part payments? So maybe where something is two hundred pounds, someone that that's you know it's a contribution, and then they can help with with um with the rest of the money. Person hasn't 
try to register for this address and that we know them and we're confident that we can associate that person with that address and we can therefore then pass that information off to, to the prepaid card provider for processing of the card. In terms of GDPR and all of those things, obviously the application uh, registration portal is it falls under the, the data post, um, privacy impact assessment for the department and working with the department and NI Direct to make sure that they're very clear in front of what we're capturing, how we're capturing and what we're doing with that data. We're only holding the data for the purposes of the scheme and for the execution of the scheme. Um, we will hold it inside NI Direct infrastructure, so in terms of security, in terms of data protection and all those things, we fall under the normal uh, public sector guidance and guidelines and, and, and standards. Um, we only pass name and address information to the prepaid card provider to allow them to, to to process the, uh, the card itself. Um, so, so from a from a GDPR perspective, we're working through all the elements of that, but, but relatively comfortable in terms of what we're doing. We're, we're capturing that information for the purposes of, of executing the scheme. Um, so, so yes, there will be some prerequisites. And I'll just go back to the other part of your question around the letter office. I've had already engaged with the letter office around getting the data set is okay, okay, but we're in the middle of a. Of a Probably, you know, election season and all of those things that people starting to sign up. Um, we've got other questions around what happens if I'm not on the register at the moment, and what happens if I become 18 during the scheme as opposed to after even another. So working through all of those, and the answer is not any one of those things. It is a combination of all of those data sets, yeah. working with all of those people, working with the electoral office to get different snapshots of that as we go. And, and, and I, I did allude to the last part of your question, which is around 18. Um, and and, and mm -hmm. conversation around where it's that cut off and the policy, we're still working through that. But certainly, um, working with the minister, those that have viewed that um, 18 while the registration application process is open. So, if I turn 18, once the scheme has been launched, up until the point of closing the registration, then that is valid. Rather than the point where you're allowing the sign now and say today, if you're 18, now it's okay, but not tomorrow. But again, <coughs> go back to the policy decisions around that. Those are just some of the options that we're working through. Okay. I think in the middle of that, we've got a debate going on the policy side and the delivery side. In a sense, the clear idea wants to keep it as simple as possible to ensure that we are covering what we need. But from a policy perspective, we need to also understand who's applying you know, all of our other requirements from a policy perspective. So how do we get the balance in the middle of that? And the, one of the big questions which is kicking around is what was the cut-off date? Right? And what about the 17 or 17 and a half? You know, but there will be legislation, there will be regulations going forward to authorise these payments, and that will all go into the seven as well, due course. Okay. Um, I know you suggest as well that if there was uh, a window in which to spend this and people were going to fall 18 within that window, you maybe would consider that as part of the the kind of considerations and then around that because I'm conscious that you know people who are 18 years old maybe even towards the end of the six months or whatever um if the heart had told to be um maybe wouldn't have access to it in the same way just trying to speak to that we're aware to um I, I do think it's interesting in relation to the electoral register and indeed you know outside of voting um if you're applying for a mortgage, it's appropriate that you're on the electoral register and it, does, it is kind of conducive to your credit, you know, ability and all those types of things. Um, and maybe it'll encourage more people to get on the register and vote, which as politicians are all happy to see. So, yeah, it's, thank you for that. Thanks for, thanks for that. And just to ask, has consideration been given to extending it to 16 and 17 year olds? You know, because you could have young people who are not in education or training and who, you know, may have responsibilities as well. Um. At the moment, it's, it's, it's being looked upon as being 18, 
the survey that will be the policy issue that we'll, we'll bring up with the Minister in due course. Okay, I think that, that, that would be useful, thanks. Can we bring Christopher into the spotlight, please? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, Um, 
to an extent, this goes back to the previous point about what is the pleasure of the scheme. There are a lot of difficulties and barriers in trying to definitively say if we spend 145 million pounds on this scheme, we are going to have that. Thanks, Christopher. Um, and I think that that's all of our questions uh, for now. So, look, thank you very much for the briefing. Um, and we're going to pick up on some of the points um, and maybe communicate back to yourselves in relation to that. But it has been very useful. Thank you very much, sir. You've been the opportunity this morning. And we look forward to being back in the future. Thank you. Uh, members, we're going to move on to our next briefing and then we'll come back um, after that to, to agree some actions out of, the, out of this, but our officials are here for the, the next briefing, so we don't want to keep people waiting too long. Um, so item number five is our briefing from um, officials from the Department for Infrastructure on regional planning. There is a clerk's memo at page 106 of your pack. The committee's micro-inquiry report on the macroeconomic recovery is at page 109. And then our micro-inquiry report on the energy strategy is at page 127. There's an updated clerk's memo at page 12 of your table papers, and uh, which includes a written briefing from the Department for Infrastructure. And then there is a written briefing uh, paper at page 12 of your table papers from um, Department for Infrastructure. <coughs> So just to remind members, during our recent micro-inquiries, a number of planning-related issues were raised by stakeholders, and the purpose of this briefing is to hear directly from senior planning officials uh, leading on regional planning policy on how it can support and enable economic development. So I'd like to welcome to um, our meeting this morning, and, and thank you very much for agreeing to attend um, our committee. Angus Kerr, who is Chief Planner and Director of Regional Planning at DFI, Alistair Beggs, who is Director of Strategic Planning Directorate at DFI. Um, Scott Symington, who is Senior Principal, Regional Planning Directorate at DFI. So if I hand over to yourselves to, to make an opening statement and then we'll um, open it up to members for some questions. Thank you very much, Chair, um, for the invitation to brief the committee on um, planning issues and particularly respond to some of the issues that have been raised um, by stakeholders during your recent micro-inquiries. Um, uh, as you said, I'm, I'm Angus Cairn, Chief Planner um, in DFI, and Alistair and, and Scott are joining me here today. And we really do welcome the opportunity to set out um, the rule um, of the planning system, particularly facilitating energy development and delivering infrastructure which supports energy needs of business community and citizens. And hopefully um, uh, what, what, what we say today will, will address some of the issues that, that, that have come up in your, in your inquiry. And I propose to set out the wider planning policy context and also brief you on some measures underway to improve the planning system. Um, and then Alistair will update you on some of the work um, councils are taking forward in preparing local development plans and also on some of the big, really significant energy projects that we're doing within the department. And, and as, as you said, then we're very much happy to have you take questions. Members will be aware that the planning system has been transformed in recent years following executive decisions to reform the system um, and, and to transfer responsibility for the majority of planning functions to local councils. Um, in 2015, councils are now responsible for preparing local development plans for their areas and for determining the majority of planning applications. And um, while we in DFI retain responsibility for regional planning policy and legislation and for determining regionally significant development applications, 
And that um, the two-tier planning system is very much similar to um, the systems in all the other jurisdictions in these islands. The planning system provides a balanced framework for furthering sustainable development in the long-term public interest through integration and balancing of complex social, economic and environmental factors when place-making and taking planning decisions. The system has played an important role in helping to, to achieve the, the exceedance of the 40% target for electricity consumed um, being generated from renewable energy sources. Um, and figures indicate that the 12-month period um, between January and December of 2020, 49.2% of total electricity consumption was generated from renewable sources in Northern Ireland, um, with 84.9% from wind. The Strategic Planning Policy Statement, or as we call the SPPS, published in 2015, provides the policy framework um, for um, a wide range of planning in matters of particularly renewable energy. And the aim of the renewable energy policy is to facilitate the siting of renewable energy generating facilities in appropriate locations within the built and natural environment in order to achieve Northern Ireland's renewable energy targets. Um, and to really realise the benefits of renewable energy without compromising other environmental assets of enormous importance. On the 21st of April, um, Minister Mallon announced a review of um, the strategic planning policy um, in the SPPS for renewable and low carbon energy to ensure the department's planning policy in this area remains up to date, um, robust and fit for purpose. This has been undertaken in the context of the climate crisis but also, of course, in the context of the energy strategy which DFE are preparing. As with all new policy development, there will be extensive engagement with stakeholders and the public as part of this process, and a key challenge will be to facilitate renewable and low-carbon energy development, which is acceptable to our communities and also protects the environment and furthering sustainable development in the long-term public interest. I'll also going to explain the Local Development Plan Programme in a little more detail later on, including the requirement for Local Development Plans to take account of the strategic policy and guidance and which we um, prepare in DFI. We very much welcome the work currently being undertaken by um, the Department for Economy in bringing forward a new energy strategy for Northern Ireland. And um, we as officials have been actively involved, contributing in particular to two of the five thematic work groups, namely power um, and transport. Um, on the planning side, we have been engaging mostly through the power working group on areas of mutual interest on a regular basis. DFI recognises that the planning system is often the place where different and opposing interests meet for the first time. For example, local environmental interests versus economic interests, and is therefore likely to be the area where any conflict arises. Planning may not always be able to reconcile competing interests, interests but there is an ample opportunity for stakeholders to participate in the new local development plan process and um, at councils so that all interests are taken into account over the period of a 15-year plan. In relation to specific development proposals, DFI will continue to encourage developers to engage in pre-application discussions and meaningful pre-application community consultation in order to seek to address any community concerns prior to submission of proposed planning applications. In furthering sustainable development in the long-term public interest, the planning system will help to strike a careful balance between facilitating appropriate development, which seeks to address the climate crisis and support green growth on the one hand, whilst also protecting local environment and residential amenity interests on the other. 
As you expect, DFI farming officials continue to engage positively, positively with DFE in order to ensure there is good synergy between the energy policy work and the planning system generally. This will seek to ensure that the future energy strategy will be demonstrably aligned with fundamental environmental principles from the strategic to the local level in order to achieve the energy transition um, we all hope to get. It is essential that communities are fully engaged and that there is public acceptance and support for the proposed way forward, be that on the issue of targets, how they might be delivered and through what technologies. Any future public subsidies would also need to be considered collaboratively to ensure there are no unintended consequences in the developments which benefit from such subsidies also comply with all other regulatory frameworks, including planning. The latest annual planning statistics um, for 1920 indicate an approval rate of 88% for renewable energy applications, indicating that the system is continuing to help to facilitate appropriate renewable energy development, and this is quite a high approval rate compared to some of the other jurisdictions. But we recognise there are concerns about the planning system, particularly in terms of performance and community engagement, and that's why the Minister is continuously looking at ways to improve the system, particularly as the performance of the planning system will have a critical role in supporting our future economic and societal recovery from the current pandemic. So at the moment, the Department is undertaking a review of the implementation of the Planning Act. The focus of the review is on the implementation of the legislation, legislative provisions of the Act itself, and the extent to which the original objectives of the Act have been achieved. And this will then inform whether there is a need to retain, amend, or appeal any provisions in the Act. The Minister is keen to look at how we can further improve the system for all stakeholders, including councils, developers, and the wider public, not just in planning decisions, but also in the delivery of new local development plans, which will provide the certainty for the long term. The review will also provide an opportunity to consider any improvements or fixes which may be required to the way in which the Planning Act has been commenced and implemented in subordinate legislation. There's no doubt also that issues with the planning system that have surfaced as a result of the pandemic will be considered as part of this review as well. And that the issues raised may not always require that sort of change. The Department is currently collating responses it received to a recent call for evidence exercise um, on the review of the Act, um, which asks key stakeholders and interested parties for their views. The call for evidence was posted on our website, um, and while it was primarily targeted at particular stakeholders, anyone who wished to express their views had the opportunity to do so. It closed on the 16th of April, and we have 56 responses um, received. Um, once responses have been collated, the Department intends to engage further with um, our Committee of Infrastructure in advance of preparing the review report. Whilst there are many factors which impact the overall performance of the planning system and the processing of terminal planning applications, statutory consultation response times are often cited as one of the reasons for delay. Following an independent review at the end of 2019, the Department established a cross-government planning forum comprised of senior leaders to implement recommendations made in the review into the rules, statutory consultation and planning process. The forum is working in collaboration between central and local government with a particular focus on improving processes and timeframes for processing major and economically significant applications. Strengthening community involvement is also a key part of um, the Minister's ongoing work to improve the planning system and people's experience of it. In October, the Minister convened the Planning Engagement Partnership 
Alistair, you, you don't appear to be on mute, but there may be an issue with using a headset. It doesn't always seem to work with Starleaf. Um, I have no idea why, but that's just been observation over the last while. Um, no, we still aren't hearing you. If 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 Alistair even perhaps tries to go out and come back in again, um, if you want to if you want to start, Angus. You want me to start? Okay. Yeah, and, and if Alistair goes out and comes back in again. Okay. So um, so basically um, start off with the situation in relation to the development plans, preparation by councils. All eleven councils are currently in various stages in the process of preparing their new plans. Thank you. 
Encouragingly, seven councils have now published their draft plan strategies. The Planning Appeals Commission has now completed the hearing sessions for the first local development plan. Independent examination that was for Belfast City Council's draft plan strategy. We anticipate a report from the Commission on that independent examination in the autumn. In addition, we recently asked the Commission to undertake an independent examination into the Fermanagh and Oma District Council draft plan strategy, which we received in December. Furthermore, since the beginning of March this year, three additional councils have submitted their draft plan strategies for the Department for consideration, including Antrim and Unabbey Borough Council, Lisburn and Castlereagh City Council, and Middle East Antrim Borough Council. The Department anticipates further submissions from Derry and Surban District Council and Mid Ulster District Council in the coming months. While the remaining four councils are progressing over the preparation for publication of their draft plan strategies. In bringing forward these local development plans, councils have flexibility to produce detailed operational planning policies tailored to their specific local social, environmental, and economic circumstances. Where a council deviates from the SPDS, they must ensure they have robust evidence to show reason justification for such a departure, as this will be examined at the independent examination. I don't know, I'll answer you back in again or keep going. No, it's still not working. So in terms of, of considering reasonably significant and called-in energy applications, members will be aware of three important departmental decisions in relation to energy proposals. Doraville Wind Farm, Corlati Wind Farm and the North-South Interconnector. The Department grants us full-time permission for the North-South Interconnector on the 14th of September 2020, a decision welcomed by SUNY and the utility regulator. The Department recognises that the interconnector is crucial to handling growing demand across electricity transmission systems in both Northern Ireland and Ireland, promoting greater competition within the single electric market for wholesale electricity trading and to protect and security of supply. It will also enhance network stability and support the future growth of renewables, renewable renewable generation. These economic and system benefits should in turn feed through to long-term benefits for consumers. However, you may be aware that the Planning Commission is currently subject to a legal challenge and with the expected three years construction period for the interconnector, it is hoped that the courts will come to a conclusion shortly after the hearing which we have been re which we have recently been advised has been rescheduled for early next month. The department is required by law um, to make decisions in line with development plan policy unless there are material considerations indicated otherwise. And any assessment of an application entails the weighing of positive and negative impacts. That weighing of factors is evident in the cases of the Doraville and Corlatch Wind Farm decisions. As regards the department's refusal of planning permission for the Doraville Wind Farm in October last year, that was a finely balanced decision where the various benefits have to be weighed up with the harm to the local area. The department fully recognises that renewable energy creates sustainable infrastructure for future generations. Green infrastructure represents a real opportunity for tackling the climate emergency and helping boost the economy, but this should never be to the unacceptable cost of the surrounding environment. At Doraville, it was judged that 33 wind turbines would cause considerable harm to the landscape interests of a large part of this barren area of outstanding natural beauty and its unique archaeological, cultural and tourism assets. The economic and environmental benefits of the proposals did not outweigh the harm to these important assets. The Planning Appeals Commission report also indicated that the scale of the proposal and the sheer magnitude of the associated 
change has the potential to detract from local people's sense of place and connection to the land. Taking all of this into account, in line with the PAC recommendation, the department refused this application. Conversely, the Korolaki Wind Farm was recently approved by the department, as there the negative impacts upon archaeological monuments, landscape, and visual amenity were outweighed by the presence of existing wind turbines, benefits to the green energy generation, and other environmental benefits. Um, thank you, Chair. Um, we're happy to take any questions. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, that has been a, a really useful overview of, um, I suppose, everything in relation to planning that the committee has been um, engaged in, in terms of the various micro inquiries that we've done, and in particular in relation to the energy strategy, um, which is currently out for consultation, as you've referenced. And I guess we're very conscious of the, the challenges, I suppose, in, in meeting our energy targets and you know moving towards uh, renewable energy and also um, balancing that against um, community interests and, and environmental um, interests <coughs> as well um, and you have you've covered it very well there you know what the department is doing in relation to that um, and how that then links back to um, local development plans and and um, you referred it in your comments to, to how they, they take account and how they have to provide robust evidence if they are deviating from the SPSS or the, the, rural, or the regional development strategy um, principles. But what, what, does, you know, what judgment is it taken by the department or in relation to those um, if the department feels that that evidence doesn't uh, stack up or are they asked to revisit those um, local development plans or what is the process in respect of that because some concerns have been expressed uh, recently from example by um, for example uh, regional energy developers or sorry renewable energy developers that you know some of the local development plans currently being progressed may um, may hinder some of the the progress in in meeting the uh, renewable targets. So it's just wondering if you had a view around that and you know how that is taken account of. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, Asher, if you are you still in play there or not. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. You might want to take that one, Asher. I'll take that one, yeah. Apologies, Chair and members. Uh, well done, Angus, for, for covering in my absence. In relation to the, the local development plan process, the department really has two functions. We are a statutory consultee to the plans, so we're there to look forward to the, the regional view in terms of all matters. And we also have a plan oversight role at the end of the process. We have the ability to ask the councils to adopt, to um, amend or to withdraw our plans. So at the moment, as all the plans come before us uh, in draft form, we are making consultation comments in, in relation to those. We're generally pointing out areas where we feel that there would be areas of potential risk to soundness uh, of the plans. And that would include, you know, areas where we feel that perhaps uh, plans are not really focusing in on regional planning policy, and that could include energy policy, for, for example. 
Um, at the moment, um, we've just had the first Belfast uh, examination uh, in relation to its development plan. And so to a degree, we're still coming to grips with these uh, things in an entirely new process. But basically, as Angus has mentioned, what we have is a situation where um, councils do have the ability to prepare policy for their own plan areas. So they, there is scope for them to look going out with the regional policy of the SVPS and so on, but they have to back that up with firm evidence. So what would be then happening is all this evidence will be tested by the Planning Appeals Commission at, at independent examination. And given for what we saw at uh, the last examination, that would be, be fairly robust. So all of those who have concerns about information uh, and uh, prospects about proposed policies will, will be able to air that fully in front of the Planning Appeals Commission. And they will thereafter make a recommendation to us as a department. And it will be there for us then to consider any report forthcoming from the, the Planning Appeals Commission in, in relation to that. And uh, I have no doubt uh, that a number of the um, a number of the new electricity companies and wind generation companies, for example, those into the true renewable energy, will be making a, a case about any concerns that they have in relation uh, to those policies. Thank you for that, um, and it is useful, I suppose, to, to get that um, information. And um, I suppose also in relation to um, the, the what we have seen over the course of, of the pandemic and how people are um, working differently, more people working from home, how, what sort of challenges does that pose in terms of I guess that that regional plan and policy, and is that something that is being looked at currently as well? Send the, the right messages throughout the, 
the pandemic around um, flexibility and pragmatic approach, if you like, to planning policy in relation to some of the, the changes that the pandemic brought for us in terms of, for example, you know, um, eating and drinking outside, and you know, take away um, businesses operating from, um, from restaurants, um, you know, um, planning controls and, and conditions around distribution um, facilities for supermarkets and that sort of thing. So there's a whole range of, of, of measures um, brought in uh, to try and keep the, the system going. Um, and indeed for ourselves um, as well, like as representing most of the departments, you know, staff have to be supported to, to, to work from home and, and there's a lot of work done um, across the, the, the group in the FI on that as well. No, th thanks for that. Um, and I suppose I, I also meant kind of looking forward to, you know, potential development um, and I suppose more regional balance um, that we, we may see emanating from um, the, the economic recovery plans and as people maybe seek to, to work from home more regularly uh, and we were also seeing, um, for example, the finance minister is rolling out the regional hubs. Is there any kind of, I suppose, planning considerations being looked at in respect of that type of development? Yeah, um, I suppose that, that, that's kind of our, our, our response to, to, to the pandemic and to recovery and, and, and the, the Ministry is very keen um, that, that um, the Department um, responds very positively to that and focuses on a green recovery. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of... Um, um, and there's a lot of activity around the department generally um, on particularly sustainable transport measures to um, respond to that, um, but also um, the planning system as well um, will be playing its part in terms of facilitating that recovery. It's a, it's a factor that councils will be looking at as they bring forward their, their new development plans. Um, and um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the flexibilities and so on that we've, we've talked about that I mentioned earlier already are still in place and, um, and we'll move forward in, uh, in, in that respect. And so I, th I think generally um, you know, the, the, the planning system will be um, wanting to play its part, if you like, in, in how um, we, we, we recover more generally as a society. And we're, we're involved in some of the wider government work as well, for example, the High Streets Task Force looking at town centres um, and um, indeed work as well um, on sort of better place shaping um, uh, you know, and, and sort of um, how we can use planning to create places that will work um, in, in a kind of post-pandemic society. No, that, that, that's useful to know and, and I appreciate some of this is, is work in progress as well. And I suppose just I wanted to go back to um, the, the local development plans. Uh, the reviews that are currently ongoing, including in relation to renewable energy, um, will the local development plans that are being progressed at the minute have to retrospectively take account of any changes that would perhaps be made um, emanating from those uh, reviews? Um, no, no, I mean, the, 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 we, we work, as, as I said, closely with the, with the heads of planning the councils so that they're aware of timescales for new policies coming through. So, um, you know, the, the councils will progress their plans um, now, um, knowing that this policy is on its way. When the policy does come out, um, then um, it, 
plan will be at different stages um, in the process. Um, it can be unfortunate timing, but you know, for example, if the policy comes out while plans go through independent examination, they will then address that at the independent examination. If if a plan has just finished the process and it's adopted, and when the policy comes out, then that the policy will be taken into account in the ongoing reviews of the plans. There's a requirement to review the plans every five years. Okay, thank you for that. Um, can we bring in Stuart, please? Thank you, Chair. Uh, yeah, thank you, Maxine, for the funded question that we raised. With this around how, when policy changes, um, local development plans will uh, be able to match and track uh, those policy changes. Um, thinking particularly around the area where um, the whole thrust of government is taking us into the area of um, a low carbon future, um, the, the, the uh, move away from fossil fuels to renewables, um, and how that will be tracked in local development plans, um, and how quickly, if you like, the ship can be turned around, um, because at the moment, um, you know, uh, fossil fuel projects, and I'm thinking particularly of two in uh, my constituency, the Lauren Gas Caverns and the, the Clocken Point applications are both effectively, well, one, one uh, is of regional significance and the other is being dealt with at a local level, but when policy changes, it might be important uh, for, for those to become uh, matters of interest. Um, under that new policy change, and I just need to understand quickly those the, 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 the changes to policy will allow uh, planners and, and the community and others uh, to have a, a more significant input um, uh, during that change. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as soon as the policy draws come out, um, it, it not only will it influence, as I said, the local development plans as they come forward, and it will depend on what stage the development plan is at. Um, as to how that, that, that impacts, if you know what I mean, um, either good timing and there's an opportunity for the local government plan to reflect it, or unfortunately uh, the, the, the particular policy changes come out maybe just after a plan has come in and then it will be through review going forward. But the um, the other thing to say is that as soon as policy comes out, it is material for planning decision making. So whenever we introduce a new, if we introduce a new policy tomorrow on a particular issue, then you know planners who are assessing planning applications on the ground across Northern Ireland need to take that policy into account in the determination of the planning applications. So it would have an immediate effect in that sense. But that's that's helpful to know, and I presume the same will also apply in application. This is because we are all looking at this whole area around energy. That will also apply to housing as well. Oops. Warning in terms of it is not going to look to future proof in terms of 
terms of energy and production of fossil fuels, that developers and, and, and applicants need to be very much aware of that. So, so, sorry, I missed the start of that, apologies. Our comment was that, that, that therefore uh, it's a case of buyer beware. Uh, those people who are currently making planning applications need to be aware that these policy changes hopefully will be coming on stream very quickly and that they need to take the account of that going forward. Absolutely, correct. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Stuart. Can we bring Gary into the spotlight, please? Yeah, thanks, Chair, and uh, thanks to you all for the uh, presentation. Um, obviously, uh, when I've met with energy providers over this past uh, number of four months, um, one of the key concerns that they uh, have shared with me, one of the frustrations that they have is around the length of time that it takes for application to be getting through the system. Uh, you touched on the, the statutory consult B response, which is a particular frustration of mine. Um, and I do welcome that the Minister has acknowledged that there is a problem there. Um, you know, a decade ago when I first sat on the planning committee in the local council, um, we acknowledged there was a problem then. Uh, you know, ten years on, uh, I think very little has changed. Uh, obviously we've had the review of public administration. Uh, the, the planning service was obviously brought within uh, the councils at the local level. Uh, the same frustrations exist. Maybe uh, at times in the Department for Infrastructure or the, the various conference. That uh, all that obligation that I know of and to bring jobs to the Northwest uh, took three years. Um, you know, issues which could easily resolve were just protracted. And, and, and it has got to the point where developers and investors are risk going somebody going elsewhere. They okay, appreciate that each problem maybe within the Northwest at times. But if we want to bring investment and development to our areas, we need all the partners to do so. And I think that you know, the same applies when we're talking about an energy strategy and those who want to invest in renewables. That there needs to be a, a change, a complete change in how you deal with these types of applications. We look at other areas, and then, you know, right across the United Kingdom, indeed across Europe, uh, where you know, progress can be made at a much uh, faster pace. So I just want to make a point that look, uh, how can you give us confidence that if there is a review of uh, Canada and the statutory council team responses, how, how confident can we be that there's going to be a change and that we're not going to be doing the same thing in a decade's time from now? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think what you're saying, we, we, we've heard those, those sort of views many times, and in some ways that, that has been what has kind of triggered some of the work that, that the Minister has been doing recently. I mean, I suppose the, the two key pieces of, of work that I think would be the, the, the Bang um, Forum, which was established at the end of 2019, and has done a lot of really good work, in my view, in terms of getting together the really senior people and statutory consultees um, with planners like ourselves and the department and the councils and, and to bring forward some changes and um, proposals to actually improve the way statutory consultation has been working. So we've begun to monitor the statutory consultation performance much more closely. We now publish statutory consultee figures on, on, our, on our website and we have begun to see just in the last couple of quarters some improvement in those in terms of the, the average processing times. That's you know the statutory target you must respond in 21 days. It's the percentage that, that we're getting um, in terms of, of that. Um, 
we're also looking at some you know key pieces of, of work to improve um how the, how the statutory consultation process works within um the planning system so some memorandum of understanding around the rules and responsibilities clarity around that but also looking at, at sort of other areas as well because it, you know it's, it's an oversimplification to say that planning is slow simply because of statutory consultees and there's lots of reasons why planning is so often because of the, the, the complexity and controversial nature of some applications, the huge volume of of um, of kind of issues that, that, that a particular development has amongst the local community and so on. So our big sort of push on that is to is to focus on early engagement in, in the planning process, so encouraging developers to engage as early as possible with communities around their development, understand what the, how, you know what are the issues with local community and can they be addressed up front, thereby heading off a lot of opposition you know, when the application comes in. Also looking at pre-application discussions with planners and statutory consultees so that there's an expectation that you know if you are going to put a planning application in for some such development, we would expect to see a transport assessment, an environmental assessment, um, an assessment of flooding or whatever the particular different issues are with, with the development and the application. So that all comes in. Um, when, when the application comes in and then there's not all the delays that happen when it comes in it's, it, it's sort of sent around and then the message comes back and we need additional information on this and just and, and so you get into this sort of um, circular process of, of seeking information and changes and, and so on and re-advertising so the community see the changes and are aware of this information and the whole process becomes quite complex so if you can do that early on that's very much um, our target we're also looking at um, what we're calling a validation checklist approach where there's a bit more clarity as to what it is that needs to make an application valid. Um, we can, the culture of Northern Ireland here, and sort of answer and I see this when we, when we talk to our colleagues um, from the other jurisdictions, we tend to sort of support applications through the system, um, almost like an MOT system. They're much more ruthless in, in the other jurisdictions, you know, if, if the application is not, does not have all the information it needs, it's just invalid. And the clock doesn't start. Start, and the, if it's unacceptable, you know it's just refused. And then the, and the endless work that goes around between developers and agents and planners in terms of trying to get it to a position where it can be approved, it's just not done. There's a, there's a subsequent application comes in, or it's or, or it's just left and it doesn't come in again. So there's a whole range of things that we're we're looking at through that sort of planning forum and um, work, and also the end of review of the planning act, which touched on, which is the opportunity to look at and. Um, what is what is not working in the legislation um, at the minute in, in the system, and um, what legislative fixes can we um, suggest? Um, and look, I mean, the change we brought in 2015 was massive. I mean, it was such a big change. You know, the, the planning act at the time was the biggest step to go through the assembly at that time. 26 pieces of supported legislation underneath it. Um, it, and there have been glitches and, and, and the issues with it, you know, were things that we, we, we thought would be the way legislation would work and, and it hasn't necessarily been. So there's a lot of work to do there um, about fixes and so on. No, thanks for letting us a very detailed response. I uh, do appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to respond in terms of figures for labor. Could you share with us or maybe it's accessible online? I'm not too sure, but in terms of the percentage of links that respond to each of 21 degrees, that type of information, I don't know if you have it to hand, but even just to give us a floor as to how that's broken down, and then you can share with us 
Chair, we can we can write to the department for those. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks, Gary. And I suppose just a, a point there on on the community engagement because I think that that is something that uh, we all recognise and probably through your constituency work that can be an issue and it, obviously there is um, what is statutorily uh, required but has the department given any consideration to what could be considered best practice as well as what is required so because you know you've mentioned like pre-application notices and, and engaging with communities in advance of putting in applications so that you know potential issues can be ironed out but has any kind of consideration been given to that type of um, information being put forward. Yes, I mean, I mean, I suppose that that, that, that that is the focus of the minister's um, planning engagement partnership, which which um, she, she's recently established. Um, we're really getting um, you know uh, practitioners, academics, communities. We're working closely with um, um, community places, and we're the experts in um, community engagement planning across Northern as well on, on that partnership to try and examine what can we do to improve the way communities engage um, with, with planning. Um, and then we're going to produce a report for the Minister in the summer, which is going to set out a number of recommendations. And part of it is looking at, you know, how is the system working at the moment? Uh, you know, are there things that are working well and effectively? And then focus on what, what do we need to do better? And, what, what, and really a lot of the focus is about this kind of pre-application um, engagement um, because we, I think everybody recognises that's so important. Um, you know, not just in terms of getting the right type of development that communities find more acceptable, but also actually in terms of the performance of the system and being able to actually um, deal with, with planning applications you know, effectively and quickly. And so that group will will be um, looking, looking at that and um, uh, reporting on that. No, that, that's good to know. Um, can we bring Sinead into the spotlight, please? Thank you very much for your briefing so far. Um, I just following on from um, what Gary was um, expressing, I suppose all elected representatives would express uh, similar sentiments. 
Uh, I believe the planning has had um, a historical um, bad reputation in, in relation to speed at developing plans and getting plans passed. Uh, and uh, I certainly uh, welcome the review that the Minister has been played in place on in, in 21st June, or 21st April, sorry. Uh, and it's long overdue, to be perfectly honest, because we have, uh, we have more than glitches. Uh, can I say in the system, and we need to overcome them because it is seriously impacting um, on our economy and our ability to develop quickly, uh, and impacting on investment as well. I hear from many investors that just they tell us that it's too difficult. It's too difficult here when we compare um, working in other parts of the UK. So we have a fundamental problem, and I'm, I'm really delighted that we are um, considering seriously reviewing. Uh, situation and overcoming it. Um, obviously, uh, in the context of energy and meeting our renewable targets, planning is fundamental. Um, that uh, and um, I've spoken to many, many people in the sectors, um, and they, uh, as Gary has said, um, they they are finding it a complete and utter struggle. Uh, and we're really concerned about the slow approvals for new, for for example, wind turbine developments. Uh, and it is really threatening our renewable targets. Uh, and renewable targets, as you know, are quite ambitious. So we need to pull up all the gaps to ensure that we meet those ambitious targets in the future. So planning is, is fundamental to that. Also, um, you know, I, I wonder, can you give me any feedback on how um, the planning department deals with, for example, the treatment it deals with battery storage? In particular, you know, um, we're told that it's it's kind of been dealt with as an equal to large scale electricity generation, uh, and again, that in itself risks delays and creates further bureaucracy and holds back innovation and investment. And, and I just want to see a way through uh, these blockages uh, so that we can come out collectively with good outcomes. We had, um, as you're well aware, we had micro inquiries, an economic micro inquiry, was a common theme from the stakeholders that engaged with us. The planning was was a blockage in the system. Um, so, uh, just if you if you care to kind of share your views on how we overcome these. Yes, thanks, thanks for that. Uh, I mean, I, th I think that is probably the key and fundamental issue that, that you know, we hear a lot, uh, not just at the, from the energy side, but planning puts an important impact on, on development in all sectors. It's the same sort of discussions I'm having with colleagues in DFC around housing um, and other kind of types of development as well. So, um, look, we are very much aware of it. Hopefully, you've got the, the very clear impression that the Minister is very keen to address it through the, the different measures that I've talked about, about here today. I think that one, one of the key things for me is that collaboration with yourselves and the energy side of the Department for Economy, and which we've had throughout the development of the energy strategy, which I think probably in the last generation wasn't so much there, um, but that's something that certainly I've prioritised very, very firmly, and the Minister has as well, and indeed that's been reciprocated from officials in economy. When I say that, what I really mean is that people often say, you know, planning is a barrier, planning is a problem. And yes, in some ways that's true, but planning will reflect how developments are received in the community. 
Um, so you know, we have had problems and delays uh, with renewable energy development across Northern Ireland. Um, but to some extent, that's because we, we've we've been on a kind of a um, a single turbine, you know, wind farm kind of uh, development process for a number of years, and some of Northern Ireland's population just aren't bought into that and don't buy into it. So the emphasis that we've been trying to make um, in our in our input, if you like, to, to the work that's been going on the energy strategy is to be cognizant of that, to, to talk to, to communities, to talk to people about what what's, what the, what the energy strategy is going to mean for them. Um, and local elected representatives, you know, so there's an understanding. If we do opt for very high targets, if we do opt for onshore renewable energy, this is what it's going to mean. Um, you know, because it, 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 you know, everybody will sign up to some of these things in a strategic sense, but it's only whenever you suddenly have one of these developments in your own local area that there's a whole kind of you know issue with the with the planning application around it. Um, and so you know. Up, for example, in Northern Ireland, it's a very unique settlement pattern. There's not very many. There's not many places you can go where you're far away from a house, um, or, or, or from a village, um, and that makes it more challenging than it does when, when we talk to colleagues in some of the other jurisdictions where there's actually not much development countryside. So you know, solar farms in the countryside, wind farms in the countryside have less impact um, on, on people who are living um, in, in those areas. So. There's lots of issues. What does that mean for offshore um, solutions? From a planning, from a terrestrial planning point of view, that's much better. Um, uh, you know, because you're, you're reducing the number of, of developments that you have, and the people maybe don't, don't want this area in the area. The other thing you know that, that I believe is important is the whole issue of community buy-in and benefit. So particular schemes are community-driven renewable energy schemes. Um, and schemes that actually are can be seen to be of benefit to the area within which they are they're about, um, and don't create this situation where it's seen to be external developers coming into the area, you know, building and developing a scheme which isn't particularly popular, and then there doesn't seem to be any benefit um, for the local people living in that area. So, you know, uh, th th there's a there's a lot of factors there that that. If they're handled correctly through this iteration of the energy strategy, will make a big difference, I think, to the way planning works. Um, and I'm not saying that I think there's lots of things we need to change about planning, that's what the review and so on are looking at. But I think that some of the more fundamental things about community acceptance and buy-in will make a big difference to you. Know, because no matter how, no matter what planning system you have, no matter how streamlined it is, if fundamentally local people are really up in arms and local elected representatives are up in arms and against development. There's no planning system going to be quick in that in that scenario, and um, so um, I, I think you know that that's my view as to as, as to where the focus need, needs to be. Can I ask, have you implemented a fast lane or uh, for for economic targeted um, planning requests? coming in, is it, you know, and, and it's going to create jobs or, you know, there's an investment in, how do you got a fast track for those uh, planning requests that are going to um, bring employment, for example? No, we, 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 we don't. What we have is different classifications of planning applications, so we Google major and regionally significant. Um, so the purpose of that is so that a major application which is over a certain size and um, what we tend to be the ones that create jobs and so on, councils can focus on those and sorry, consultations can focus on those and give those, you know, um, the requisite attention. We can't sort of just 
take out a particular type of development and then have fast tracking because you know there are so many different processes that you have to go through and um, largely around the issue of community involvement and community engagement and we can't sort of suddenly say look this this, this proposal brings jobs so we're not going to bother with um, the, the eight weeks of public consultation or uh, you know we're going to remove the requirement and um, those things have to go through i mean what we have also done i suppose with the street and policy statement does emphasize that economic and um, factors like job creation are material planning consideration. So whilst it may not state it, it means that those can be taken into account in whether it should be approved or refused. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sinead. Can we bring John O'Dowd into the spotlight, please? Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Thank you for the presentation this morning. Very interesting. I suppose it changed the tone for the, the economy committee, but it's obviously a major economic issue for planning, but new faces and a change of message back is, is always interesting. Um, I am sponsoring a small green energy bill going through the assembly, um, and obviously that will have implications for planning if it's successful. But you will see more small green energy schemes in the countryside in terms of rural communities, farmers, but also businesses. And I suppose that that relays into the point you're making there, right, is that uh, we have to understand uh, as public representatives, as a community, that if we have a green energy strategy, whether it's micro or macro, then that has implications for planning. Uh, so that'll be an interesting point we'll have to take on board by, by going through the process for legislation. But the main point I want to raise with you was in relation to you mentioned judicial reviews. And quite clearly, judicial reviews are an important part of the democratic process of holding this all accountable. But in my opinion, there appears to be quite significant delays between uh, the closing of the hearing and the announcement of the judgment, which has the delay has economic consequences. Is there any engagement between the planners or your department and the judiciary, not specifically in individual cases, or expected events in individual cases, but on the issue of the delay between the closing of the hearing and the announcement of the judgment? Um, well, unfortunately, there's, there's far too much engagement with the judiciary in planning, but then, because sadly we, we do a lot of challenges and it is quite a litigious um, area, but um, we, 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 we have, we, we do, I, you know, sort of like periodically meet, if you like, with, with judiciary, these sort of things, but we have inputted to, there was a recent sort of review done, um, the Department of Justice, I think, done, um, prioritization, prioritizing kind of um, cases through the judiciary and so on, um, which brought forward a number of recommendations and we didn't. That was a couple of years ago and we didn't put into that. Um, and certainly, you know, those would be at that point about the delay, um, in, in, in not just in that um, aspect, actually, but more generally throughout the whole way some of these cases are, are processed. It's some it's, it's a point we made. Um, at that time, and also we, we made points around the, the, the kind of the, the, the leave hurdle, which seems, I mean, this might be just me as a planner talking, but it seems pretty low in Northern Ireland. It's, it's fairly unusual for cases not to be granted leave. So we sort of made points, I think, around some of those sorts of issues and also around um, kind of timeliness point, you know, where um, sometimes cases are left, um, you know, 
right to the end um, of, the, of the time limit and you know that you waste time in that as well and is that time out correct and so on so we, 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 we've, we've made points as much as we can into um, the Department of Justice process around that and we'll continue to do that when we have an opportunity. I actually, on uh, a different committee, I raised the issue of the barrier for leave with the Lord Chief Justice because I was under the same impression now the Lord Chief Justice that wasn't a lower bar than elsewhere and uh, I wasn't equipped to argue with the Lord Chief Justice so I, I left at that point but in terms of the submission you made to that review is that public and could we have a copy of it if, if it is? To be honest I, I don't know it's going back a bit now so um, I, need to, I need to check that I need to check it you know um, so it was a while ago that would have been sent through and that engagement took place um, and also, I should say that, that I'm, I'm also probably not equipped to argue with the Lord Chief Justice about the lead buyer, and it may well be just my sort of rage on my part and, um, you know, the honest perception, but um, we shall see. That's not okay, thank you. Thanks, John. Um, can we bring Claire into the spotlight, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and good morning. Um, I suppose it's really just to reiterate some of the points that have already been made by other members. Just in relation to the planning, generally, my experience in my own constituency within this area, I find that there's a lack of uh, consistency in applying uh, planning policy. Um, and I suppose then that will impact what this local aging lens area, but also right across Northern Ireland, because whilst there's inconsistency within this area, um, inconsistency across all of Northern Ireland, you know, and any um, opportunities moving forward um, to try and address that, I, I think will be important. Um, and you have talked to to the slowness around the planning policy. To an extent, I don't accept the comments around that that's to be expected because of uh, community representations, which of course are valid and need to be part of the process. But I do think that there is a way that we can try and speed this up um, for the economic benefit, um, not just in my area, but, but right across Northern Ireland and other jurisdictions, you know, across the UK, indeed seem to be able to achieve that. So I'm not sure why we in Northern Ireland are not able to achieve that. So I suppose what I'm just sort of saying to you and encouraging is if we can somehow uh, apply the process in a consistent way, but also, and I, and I say this maybe even to, to, to contradict myself, but with, with flexibility too, because you know, on the other side of the environment, we, we see um, uh, issues really quite insignificant issues because people aren't being flexible in terms of the specific circumstances of certain areas. So it's just a, a, a quick commentary around that um, and I do think it, it, you know, it, it will feed into the, the kind of conversation that you hear uh, about today in relation to renewables and, uh, and how we can take those particular applications forward. Absolutely, I mean I think the consistency point is a really good point and it does come up a lot as well and actually in some ways the decision to transfer planning to councils um, I suppose reduced to the, the ability for consistency and, and it did so in a very conscious way because really it was saying um, planning, you know, local planning should be delivered by local councils. So what Belfast does um, in, in relation to certain types of development and policy will be different to what Derry does or Fermanagh or Causeway Coast and Glen. So in, in, in handing over powers to councils um, and in creating that two-tier planning system that we now have, you actually you unfortunately do get a little bit of inconsistency as part of that. Um, 
previously, whenever it was all DOE planning, um, you know, we would be under quite a lot of pressure to be very consistent and you know, in how everything was delivered across planning. And where it's at now, I suppose it's changed to some extent. Having said that, you know, I think as Alistair touched on earlier, we're very much in the business of trying to make sure that there is a degree of consistency in terms of how the Ministry's strategic um, and regional policies are implemented so that it's a balance and um, they've got to take account of those to have regard to them properly and if they are uh, council level for good local reasons and if they have to do so and um, to, to meet local issues then that's fine but uh, you know that needs to be handled very carefully and there needs to be good evidence in terms of deviating from that sorry i, I appreciate those comments and i suppose that was almost going to be my suggestion you know whilst those specific policies are devolved to local government. Is there a role that the Department for Infrastructure can, can play almost in providing guidance to, to kind of try and shore up the, the, the varying kind of um, decisions that are made within council areas? Like, to just give you an example, my understanding is, is the, the cafe pavement license uh, requires planning in Cold Coasting Lands but doesn't require it in any other council area. You know, so there's going to be an impact in this constituency because of that, because of bureaucracy around it. You know, so and that will have a wider issue for regional balance and all of that, um, you know, so anything that the department can do is try and sort of enable or ensure that council areas across Northern Ireland are, are approaching it in a way that will, will ensure the best outcomes for all. Really. Absolutely, you know, I agree with that and I mean, we do, we try to do as much as we can and regularly meet the, the councils to try and create that sense of, um, you know, a level of consistency. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Claire. Um, I think that that's all of our um, um, questions. So, look, thank you very much for coming to our committee. It was a really useful briefing for us, um, and I think we got a, a lot out of it and a, a lot of issues covered there. Um, and I think the points have been well made about the role that planning has in economic development and, and the importance that it is going to have in terms of particularly the energy strategy and development going forward. So look, thanks very much. And um, I think we'll have a few actions that we'll be following up on from this briefing as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, members, so uh, if we maybe just start with this one. Um, Peter has a few actions that we he has noted down there. Um, and a couple of them are that we would write to the Justice Committee on that issue around um, the the bar for judicial reviews and um, potentially to the infrastructure committee as well. On yes, Chair, issues. just... just Successful uh, challenge by the market's development market, 
Thanks, Christopher. I know I think that the point has been made that uh, the uh, right to judicially re review things is obviously um, important to people and to have that as part of the process. I think what we're proposing is that we get an understanding of um, what the, the, that bar is in terms of leave to uh, take a judicial review and if the Justice Committee is just looking at any work around that. But John's looking to come in for a comment anyway. Thanks. Thanks, John. So members are content that that, that is what um, we would be looking for in terms of writing to the Justice Committee and Peter. Chair, also the Infrastructure Committee, just to, to put down a, a bit of a marker, if you like, um, about the significant interest for the economy remit in the planning process. It was just very interesting how the officials mentioned the High Street Task Force and their involvement in it. Obviously, again, that's a TEO lead, but this committee has a, has a huge interest. And as they, they mentioned extensively, obviously one of the reasons they were here was the energy strategy and the need there will be for planning to be properly aligned with that and, and for the uh, councils and so on to take cognizance. So it's really just to write to the, the infrastructure committee to let them know that this committee has an interest in anything that's being done around planning um, and to ask them just to keep us in the loop. There's a number of... Um, reviews that are coming out that were mentioned by the officials and I think it's just important we don't miss anything on those. Yeah and I think it is reassuring um, to hear the officials recognise that they are involved in the development of the energy strategy and the work that is being done in, in respect of that so that, that is useful for us to be aware of as well. So members are content that we'll do those two things. Chair we, we also pick up on the, the figures that were discussed around the 21 days um, I think they said they had figures, but what we'll do is we'll just write and get those just so that we have them. Uh, I know members were quite interested in seeing just how that worked out. I, I got the impression they do have them, they just didn't have them to hand. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you. And then just to go back to the, the previous briefing on the, the High Street voucher um, scheme, so we wanted to get some clarifications uh, from the department. Peter, do you just want to reflect yeah, on... Yeah, Chair, th there's a number of clarifications there. I think it's worth just getting in a number of questions that they may not be able to answer now, but that we will want a response to uh, around how this spending can be tied down locally. How, how they can actually say they can set a, a geographic limit on how the spending works. Um, additional to that, um, also the issue around who they have spoken to in terms of uh, reaching people with disabilities and disadvantaged and so on. So I also would suggest if members are content, we'll start pumping out to um, our own stakeholder groups on our Twitter feed that they, you know, we'd like them to get in touch with us if they want to have an input to that. I think it's useful, the committee could be a useful gathering point for those sorts of views. Um, also, the age range, the, the officials talked about 18, but they they did seem open um, to the idea of possibly 16, 17 years. That seemed to be part of the, the policy that needs to be pinned down, but I think it's worth getting in a question on that so that we get a, an official answer. Um, also, the um, issue around whether the um, £100 voucher would impact on people's benefits, I think it's really good that we get a, a direct, specific answer for that that we can then um, potentially put out to people so that they know where they stand. Um, also, the um, question around the multiplier effect. Just trying to get something on paper about the anticipation of that, because that, that's a, a huge part of what the scheme is for, um, is you put that money out there, it has a wider effect on the economy. And I just, I didn't get a sense that that has been pinned down. So getting in a question on that, that we can get an answer to would be useful. Okay. Um, and are members content with those things? Yeah. Chair, can I mention? Yeah, go ahead, Sinead. Um, I, I don't really believe that we've got any sense of economic impact um, and whilst I know it's not a job creation scheme it is certainly uh, it, it is certainly about maintaining jobs um, within within the, the, the particular sectors in retail and I didn't get any sense of, of, of that at all so I, I really do feel that as a committee we need to you know dig deep into this economic impact um, because uh, I just have no clarity, and, and in fact, I've got a real sense that either have they. Um, they talked about it being a very uh, innovative scheme, very difficult to tie down, very difficult to 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 understand. You you know what the multiplier effect would be, whether you know what was the indirect um, economic impact in terms of supply chains. All of that we didn't have any sense of it. Uh, it's really very much up in there. It's an awful lot of money not to actually know what the, the, the bottom line is going to be in the economy. You know, in the original 45p per point spent, but not quite sure. Um, and, and so far, for um, a policy that is about to be run out in a few months' time, there's more questions. And really answers at the moment, so I would agree with John Dowd about that. Um, but you know, this scheme doesn't feel ready to run yet. Um, from, from, from our briefing this morning, 
Chair, the, the other thing, Chair, that occurred to me during the session, because members have brought up a lot of issues there, now that we have a, a kind of outline, it might be a good point to do what, what the committee had talked about previously in terms of bringing in our stakeholders for a discussion event on this. Um, I'm conscious of the fact that they will have views as to how well um, this kind of voucher scheme might help secure jobs, might help them not only retain the jobs that they already have, but how they would then look at potentially using it to expand out um, their operations, expand out their workforce. Because committee has talked before about what happens at the end of the furlough, um, and there's, there's every chance that this scheme will coincide potentially with the end of furlough. So I think it's maybe the time to start organising that kind of discussion event so we can hear that from stakeholders direct. If members are content, we can probably get that done reasonably quickly. I can hear my team screaming somewhere, but I think we could probably sort that out pretty fast. Yeah, no, I think that that could, that could be useful, Peter. Um, and I, I think that certainly there's an awful lot of money being directed towards this scheme. Um, in principle, it sounds really positive, um, but it would be very useful for us to pin down some of the specifics, the, and in particular, the exact policy intent and um, the process ar around it all, because uh, we do want it to be um, very impactful in terms of what is actually going to be delivered out of it. So it's important that we as a committee have an understanding of the, the entire uh, scheme and everything around it, um, and also to apply the, the level of scrutiny that's necessary as well. Chair, the other thing that occurred to me um, is that we really didn't even get the opportunity at this point to get into the um, holiday at home yeah. voucher scheme. We, we did have a representative from TNI, but um, that, that scheme seems less clear. I, I know I've had... Um, Stakeholder groups have been in contact with the committee office saying they don't really understand how it's going to work. Um, and I think it might just be useful to talk to the sector. We have NITA in, I think, in three weeks. But I think, you know, it's, it's probably useful to get that scheme discussed as part of the, the discussion event with the, the HSS. Um, because it's, it's more complex and, and certainly reading it. I know I wasn't fully clear on how it would work. So if members are content, we can bring that one in as well, because I think there's a lot of um, work that needs to be done just around pinning down what exactly it, it does and how it's going to run. Yeah, and, and similarly, it's a first come, first serve. So, yeah. you know, there's, uh, you know, who's potentially going to benefit from that? Um, I mean, from a constituent level as opposed to a business level, because obviously businesses will benefit, but individuals as well. Um, okay, so if members are content, we'll set up that discussion event and hopefully that will give us some more information. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Okay, is that everything in relation to that, Peter? Yep, so far that I can see. If there's anything else occurs to us when we when we do the wash-up on this, we'll get back to members to seek clearance. Okay, so we'll move on then to item number six, which is our matters arising. Um, 6.1 at page 169 of your packs, there's a response from the Minister regarding penalties for St John's Ambulance in submitting late accounts to Companies House. The Minister highlights that charities are within the remit of the Department for Communities and at the actions of Companies House are not within devolved competence. So if members are content, we will forward this correspondence to the Department for Communities for a response and also copy it to the Communities Committee. 
Members agreed. Okay, thank you. Um, 6.2 then, at page 170, there is a response from the Minister regarding support for Include Youth Essential Skills provision. The Minister states that her department, along with the Education and Health Departments, are liaising with Include Youth on potential funding options. So this is to note at this stage, and the, the clerk is going to be in correspondence with uh, Include Youth, and will keep the committee updated in relation to it. Yeah, sure, it's Claire, good to know that um, this is been progressed. Claire's in contact. She um, gave me a bit of a readout of the first meeting and they have others planned. So I keep coming back to the committee with, with that as it goes along. Okay, thank you. Um, 6.3 then, page 171 of the pack. There is correspondence from the Minister outlining the key findings of the evaluation of the extraordinary awarding arrangements for vocational qualifications during summer 2020. The Minister states that certificates awarded were 83% of the number made in the previous year. It is suggested that the findings indicate a significant achievement along with um, the high satisfaction levels recorded in the evaluation, evaluation stakeholder survey. So this is to note at this stage and um, the committee has an informal meeting with the colleges tomorrow so we'll be able to discuss this with them then unless members have any comments to make. Okay, thank you. Moving on then to 6.4, page 220. There's a response from the department regarding support for independent wedding venues and reopening. The department sets out the various support schemes available but recognises there may be some within this sector who have not been able to avail of the same support of others. The Minister highlights the next formal review of the restrictions will be carried out by the Executive on the 13th of May. So members are content we will forward this response to the individual who's raised the matter. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 6.5 then, page 222 of your packs. There's a copy of a response from the Department to the Finance Committee who sought clarification regarding outstanding funds to members of the Presbyterian Mutual Society. The response sets out the potential reasons preventing further monies being available, including the investment of assets in the property market, which may impact on commitments being realised. So members of contempt, we, we will note, as this is Finance Committee with correspondence. Thank you. Page 224 then, um, 6.6, .6, there's a response from the Consumer Council following the committee's request for further information on the rights of students as consumers. The Consumer Council states it was recently contacted by the uh, students or the NUS USI on this issue and began discussions with colleagues in the Department for the Economy and with trading standards. It outlines that the department has no remit in determining whether students should receive a refund or reduction of their tuition fee, but that the Minister has asked universities to ensure that they are fully compliant with consumer law and they are clear with new and returning students about what they can expect from their course during the pandemic. So just to advise members, NUS, USI and other student unions are expected to brief the committee on the 19th um, and we can discuss this with the, the student union representatives then. So are members content to note? Charity, just on that, did we inquire at that stage about students' rights in in relation to uh, rental contracts, etc., is that something that falls under the Consumer Council? That that would chair. That would be um, the same as as consumer law and the right to be dealt with fairly and so on. Um, I'm trying to think. Did we did we say anything specifically about it? I need to check back to the correspondence that we sent originally, Chair. 
but I think we were we were fairly expansive in the the issues that um, we'd flagged up for them to look at. Um, but I'll go back and check to make sure that that was that was um, highlighted to them. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, John. Um, six point seven. Then page twenty two of our table papers. There is a confidential written briefing from the department providing an update on Project Stratum. And just to advise members that further oral briefings will be scheduled on Project Stratum um, at an appropriate time. So are members content to note? Thank you. 6.8 then, page 24 of table papers. There's a response from the Minister to the Committee's request for further information on the target dates for the pathway out of restrictions. The Minister states that while the Department has not specifically developed any targets to assess when businesses can progress along the relevant pathway, it has input to the Executive Office processes in relation to economic impacts in keeping with the priorities set out in the pathway document and has monitored the impact of COVID on the economy since the outbreak of the pandemic. And obviously we will have the opportunity to raise these issues with the Minister at next week's meeting. So are members content to note? Thank you. Thank you. 6.9 then at page 25 of table papers, there's a response from the department regarding support for the English language teaching sector. The response states that it has not been possible to legislate for every scenario or to meet the growing demands arising from all sectors and industries. And obviously we agreed earlier in today's meeting to have an informal meeting with um, representatives of that sector so we can discuss the issues in further detail. So our members content to note. Thank you. Thank you. Then um, 6.10, page 26 of table papers, there's further correspondence from the pilot who had recently contacted the committee regarding changes to the European Union Aviation Safety Agency professional pilot licences post-Brexit. This pilot licences are all EASA but were issued by the UK Civil Aviation Authority, as is the norm for EU member states. However, post-Brexit, this pilot is not entitled to practice flying in a, an EASA-registered aircraft, nor can he use his air traffic control licence in any European country. So the members might remember we considered a response uh, from the Civil Aviation Authority on the issue, which it passed on to the individual. The CAA stated that it supported UK commercial pilots to transfer their licences to other EU member states to allow them to continue to operate within both systems if the scenario were to materialise. The CAA has recently introduced a process for these individuals to easily obtain a new UK pilot licence which they can hold alongside their EASA. The department has not yet responded to this issue, so if members are content that we will forward this additional correspondence from the pilot and the Civil Aviation Authority response to the department to ask whether it's aware of the issues being raised and what work is ongoing to ensure that there is mutual recognition of licences. Um, and is there a, a British department, Peter, that might be appropriate for us to contact in relation to this issue as well? Chair, there will be, and I'm thinking it falls into that wider uh, issue around mutual recognition of, of professional qualifications. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember which English department it is, but um, we will. It could be transport, but I think there's there's more to it than that. And there's a specific minister, okay. so we'll track down the specific minister because otherwise it'll it'll take the, the letter forever to get there. So if we get a particular minister, we pursue that chair. Okay, thank you. 
Okay, members, we'll move on then to item number seven, which is um, the SR 2021-112, the Employment Rights NI Order 1996, Coronavirus Calculation of a Week's Pay Amendment Number 2, Regulations NI 2021. There's a clerk's memo at page 227, and the SR itself is at page 229. Um, members will remember, because I think we dealt with the SL1 last week, this SR ensures that consistent with the principal regulations as originally made, various statutory entitlements based on a week's pay and connected with termination of employment are not reduced as a result of an employee being furloughed under the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme. The committee approved the um, SL1 on the 28th of April. Um, this statutory rule is subject to negative resolution procedure and came into operation on the 30th of April. The examiner of statutory rules has not yet reported on the rule, so uh, members will be agreeing to the legislation subject to the examiner's report. So if members are content, we'll put the question that the Committee for the Economy has considered the SR 2021-112, the Employment Rights Northern Ireland Order 1996 Coronavirus Calculation of a Week's Pay Amendment Number 2 Regulations Northern Ireland 2021, and has no objection to the rule subject to the examiner of statutory rules report. Okay, so moving on then to item number eight, which is correspondence. On page 242 of your packs, a written briefing from the department on the 2021-22 main estimates to facilitate the legislative stage in the budgetary process. As discussed at last week's budget briefing, the main estimate is normally based on the final initial budget position However, as part of the 2021-22 final budget, the executive made a number of funding commitments because the Secretary of State had not yet confirmed those allocations to be formally made. So DOF will take forward post-budget allocations in the coming weeks to align these allocations with the main estimate. The DFE areas that will be captured are the 286 million, 276 million resource Dell and an 11 million uh, capital Dell for the Economic Recovery Action Plan and 0.9 million for the public service obligation for the City of Derry Airport. So this is just to note at this stage if members are content. Thank you. Moving on then to 8.2, at page 245 of your pack, there's correspondence from the Public Accounts Committee and copies of written assembly questions regarding concerns raised anonymously around DFE Energy Division including that lessons have not been learned from RHI and around the University of Exeter governance report. So just to remind members that the committee previously agreed uh, to hear from the University of Exeter academics and that that session is currently being arranged. So if members are content to note this at this point. Thank you. 8.3 then at page 260 of our PACs is correspondence from a manufacturing business regarding concerns around disadvantaged manufacturers in the north facing which they face when competing with businesses in Britain due to the rules of origin for goods travelling from Britain to the north for processing and the fact that an EU anti-dumping tax at 34% will be applied to aluminium extrusions supplied from China. Um, so if members are content, we'll forward this on to the Minister and to the Executive Office to ask whether they are aware of this issue and whether it has been raised with the British Government and the Joint Committee. Um, it was correspondence forwarded on from, from John O'Dowd, so unless John wants to add anything to that. 
no, no charter is that, that's a property tax Thank, Thank you. you. So 8.4 then, at page 262 of our packs, there's a copy of the Institute of the Chartered Accountants in England and Wales's Regulatory Board Annual Report. So it's just for members to note. Okay, thank you. 8.5 then, at page 295, there's a copy of CBI's COVID Working Group notes from the 28th of April, including an outline of the labour market and workplace safety issues. So unless members have any issues to raise, that's to note also. Thank you. 8.6 then, um, page 297 of your packs, there is a copy of the 35th report of the examiner of statutory rules, so that's for members to note. 8.7 then, at page 28 of table papers, there is a copy of a response from the Construction Employers Federation to the Strategic Investment Board's call for evidence on a new investment strategy for the North. Um, just to advise members that the 2021 call for evidence closed at the end of April with a formal consultation on that strategy being expected in the summer. And just if members are agreed, we will request an update detailed timeline on the investment strategy from the department. Okay. So um, moving on then to item number nine, which is any other business and none has been highlighted to us. So. Um, then just moving on to item number 10, which is the date, time and place of our next meeting, which is next Wednesday morning in room 30. And just also to remind members that next Wednesday's meeting will have the earlier start time of half nine to allow the minister to be able to leave by night or by 11.15. And also that we have an informal meeting tomorrow morning at 11 via teams with the, the colleges that we referred to earlier. So that, that is it for today. And if members, we're just going into, uh, just going into closed session here. So if members would just hang on for a few minutes.